On May 19th, 2016, Robert Kay was standing on top of Mount Everest. You know, stepping foot onto the summit was just an incredible few moments. You know, uh, there's this sense of elation and, and uh, happiness for having got there. The skies were clear, sunny, not much wind. It was the moment Kay had been hoping for. Oh, yes, this is something that I have been uh, dreaming of since I was about 15 years old. He says he barely even felt cold. I suppose it was cold, but I didn't feel cold. My gear was working very well, and I, I didn't really didn't feel cold, although there was quite a bit of frostbite that night. Kay summited along with two days' worth of climbers because bad weather the day before had caused a backup. At points, the hiker traffic was so thick that Kay and his team would be stalled for 10 or 15 minutes at a time. But he made it, fulfilled his dream, and started down the mountain. The going was slow, too slow. Coming down from the summit to the south summit is about a 15, 20-minute trip normally. It took us two hours again because of crowding. Soon, things started to feel wrong. I could hardly go more than a few steps without having to sit down and rest. I would breathe as hard as I could, and I'd get no relief. Even when he sat down, he couldn't recover. Imagine putting a plastic bag over your face and just tightening it up. That's how it feels. You know, or, or I, I compared it for one person. I said it's like breathing through a garden hose. You've got 50 feet of garden hose, and you're underwater, and you're trying to suck air through this thing, and you just can't get enough air. Kay was developing a severe case of high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE. It's the lung's response to getting too little air for too long. They started to fill up with fluid. Eventually... It'll drown you. That's basically what I was doing. I was drowning or suffocating because my lungs were filling up with fluid. Kay spent a sleepless night at Camp 4, which is at about 26,000 feet. His friends kept him awake so he wouldn't go into shock and gave him some medications to get him through the night. The next day, the team descended from Camp 4 to Camp 2, which is a long, nearly vertical down climb. Kay's Sherpas and teammates unclipped and clipped Kay from every anchor point on the mountain and took his pack. At one point, they had to switch out his oxygen tank for a new one. And taking away that last little bit of oxygen uh, sent me over the edge, and I, I, I started convulsing or spasming on the ground, and uh, I couldn't even sit up. And I thought to myself, I'm going to die in the next few seconds. And if you asked me that today, I'd think I'd get all scared. At that, that point, it just became an interesting fact. It was like, huh, I get to know where and when I die, that's interesting. If the pain's going to stop, that's good. And I didn't even care that I was about to die. But Kay doesn't die. Because someone was there to intervene. Today on Outside In, Global Rescue, a life-saving business. This company has been rescuing people from dangerous situations since 2004. And Cordelia Zars is here to walk us through how the company works, who it works for, and what it means to be rescued. Because sometimes, in some extreme cases, rescue missions don't save everyone. Okay, so what you need to know about Robert Kay, 
the guy stranded on Everest, is that before he left, he bought a membership with Global Rescue. It's a business that offers full evacuation services to people who find themselves in sticky situations around the world. So we provide medical evacuation, security evacuation and extraction, information and intelligence, and virtual healthcare services to really three categories of clients. That's Dan Richards, the CEO and founder of Global Rescue. Did you catch everything you just said? <laughs> no. Uh, one more time. <laughs> okay. So let me break it down. New Hampshire-based company, right? But with offices around the world. They have offices in Lebanon, Boston, Salt Lake City, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, Ukraine, places in Southeast Asia. Man, all over the place. Yeah. And what Dan Richards just explained is that they provide three different kinds of services. So medical services, security services, and virtual health care. So, Sam, let's say you're headed out on a big trip to... Canada. <laughs> Let's say uh, Madagascar. Madagascar. Wonderful. But you've never been there before, and you're a little nervous about all the vicious lemurs, (laughs) (laughs) and you want some backup. So you buy a medical membership with Global Rescue, which is structured a little bit like AAA, but not for your car, for your body. Which means if something goes wrong, you can call them. They will direct you to local hospitals and provide all the consultation you need to get properly treated. They're partnered with doctors at Johns Hopkins, uh, so they know what they're doing. And if something goes seriously wrong... We'll rescue you out of the field. We'll bring you to a place where you can get stabilized and treated. And then uh, we'll bring you all the way home if you're, in fact, um, in bad shape. If not, you're treated and released. Uh, That's part of your membership. You won't be charged. And uh, it's a very nice and affordable way for people to protect themselves from some of the big expenses that would result from a rescue. Um, $329 a year for that membership, okay? Does that cover the cost of treatment or just the rescue? Oh, yeah, no, so just the rescue and the consultation. It's not it's not medical insurance, um, but when you think about what you'd have to pay out of pocket for a private helicopter rescue, $329 doesn't seem too steep. I actually have no idea what to even think about how much a private helicopter rescue would cost. So off of Everest, we're looking at like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to get. Whoa! You. Yeah, so a lot. Okay, so on top of that medical membership, if you want, you can add security uh, in case you're traveling somewhere that erupts into war or civil unrest. So, for instance, the Arab Spring is a good example. We had lots of folks who were trapped in Alexandria and Cairo, and in parts of Tunisia during the uprisings in those locations. So Global Rescue deployed security teams to bring their members to a safe place. They did the same thing for members in Mumbai after the 2008 terrorist attacks. And they don't just cater to individual members. They have tons of corporate and government clients too, including NASA, the U.S. government, and National Geographic. And then, you know, your host of normal people who are just out for an adventure. Just last year, Global Rescue had about one million clients. So who is rescuing all those people? Many of their employees come from a military background, and they go through some pretty intense training to make sure they're up for the task. Oh, and they also have an office-wide fitness test, just in case anyone is slacking. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Also, it's everyone, from the military special ops to the front desk secretaries. Dan Richards, the CEO, looks like he's in super good shape. What did I have for breakfast? Two cinnamon raisin bagels, two uh, yogurts, (laughs) and an orange juice. 
<laughs> this is a human being after my own heart. <laughs> I thought so. And besides the crazy manpower they have to get things done, uh, they also have the resources. Listen to this. We've got literally thousands of aircraft around the world under contract. So rotary wing, which are helicopters, fixed wing um, airplanes. And we do a lot of these, uh, many thousands of them every single year. What? So does that mean that they can just call these people up at any moment and, and have them fly out to wherever they need? Yeah, essentially. Yep. So if something happens, they can, they call these people that they have under contract and those people will provide. (laughs) It's wild. Yeah. And besides aircraft, they use all sorts of ground transportation, like ambulances, vans, you name it. And sometimes if the weather's really bad, or like in Nepal, there just aren't roads in some places, so motorized vehicles can't reach the patient. And so we'll put them on a yak or a horse, you know, sometimes accompanied by one of our personnel um, as soon as possible. Yaks under contract. (laughs) They always come through. (laughs) Yeah, yaks are very defendable. Rain or shine. Yeah, so they've got you covered. They'll come get you anywhere in the world besides North Korea. And to make something clear... Not all these people are getting rescued all the time. Most people go on their trips, it's all smooth, and they never need the backup. Most of what we do in our operations centers every day is fairly mundane. It honestly is. So maybe not the answer you wanted to hear, but that's actually, we spend our days dealing with people who come down with traveler's diarrhea or slip and fall in their hotel rooms or are calling into, they've just bought a membership, they want to know what vaccines should I get. But occasionally, yes, something does go very wrong. Which brings us back to our friend Robert Kay, who's near the top of Mount Everest. And I thought to myself, I'm going to die in the next few seconds. And if you asked me that today, I'd think I'd get all scared. At that point, it just became an interesting fact. It was like, huh, I get to know where and when I die. That's interesting. If the pain's going to stop, that's good. And I didn't even care that I was about to die. At 21,000 feet, Global Rescue sent a helicopter to pick up Robert K. Oh, I have Robert. That's a Robert. Kay says it was like seeing the cavalry coming. You don't know for sure if you're going to live or die for 48 hours, and all of a sudden you know, guaranteed, you're going to make it. Okay, I have um, Robert, and uh, we're going to look at the hospital. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're going to die, we're going to die. Nope, we're going to make it. They flew Kay into a small clinic in Lukla, a town at the base of Everest. And from there, he was transferred to a bigger hospital in Kathmandu, where he rested and recovered before he caught his flight back to the United States. And the remarkable thing is that Global Rescue's work with Kate didn't stop there. Their, their staff was amazing. You know, I expect them just to say, yeah, we'll pay the bill, good luck. But, you know, they're, they're, in fact, even in my case, they would come and visit the hospital every day just to check on and see how we were doing and... and uh, they, they were an amazing group of people. They were, it wasn't just simply pay the claim and move on. It was, how are you doing as a person? 
And that's what I've heard from every client I've talked to, that Global Rescue really cares. That's pretty bonkers. The tricky thing, though, Sam, is that hundreds of people climb Everest every year. And some of those people are signed up to get saved if something happens. And some of them aren't because they can't pay for a service like Global Rescues. Right, like the Sherpas. Like the Sherpas. In fact, out of about 280 people that have died on Everest, an estimated 114 of them have been Sherpas. So who is Global Rescue making the mountain safer for? It's making extreme adventure easier and safer for the privileged. And it's not making it easier and safer for everybody else. That's Ben Ayers, the country director for the Z Foundation in Nepal. He's been helping improve working conditions for mountain porters and their communities for the past 18 years. And Ben says companies like Global Rescue might be contributing to a culture of mountaineers taking greater risks than they would if they had to rescue themselves. Risks that could endanger lives besides their own. And is that fair? So to help us get into these big questions a little bit more, we have another rescue story for you. One where the ethical implications of being rescued are much hazier. That story after the break. Hey, folks, executive producer Maureen McMurray here with producer Taylor Quimby. Hello. Okay, so if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know that we're always trying to get listeners to rate and review our shows on iTunes. So right now, we've got 161 ratings. That's pretty good. Monkey1018 says, great stories, good production, all you can ask for. I'll take that. Five stars. Crazy Dodge 130 says, I love the banter, laid back style, and thoughtful reflections. Five stars. Aw, thanks, guys. But is it a little suspicious? No low ratings? The closest we've got comes from Dan in Schenectady. He says, some episodes get a little scattered, but great overall. Four stars. Scattered? (laughs) Hater. (laughs) When you go and rate and review the show, we want you to be honest. But not too honest. I mean, if it's one star, you know, we don't really need it. But basically what I'm saying is that it's okay if one of you gives the show three stars. But if you are feeling the five star, do, you know, go ahead, do the five star rating. It's hard me. I actually think the three star is more painful than the one star. Really? Yeah, because then you're like, oh, this is someone of sound mind. Like a one star is a troll. Like three stars really wants to like us, but does. Okay, anyway, do let us know how you feel. And we actually read these things and we appreciate it. Yeah. So back to the show. Bye. Hey, we're back. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today we're here with Cordelia Zars talking about Global Rescue, a private company that offers full evacuation services to members who find themselves in sticky situations around the world. And we've arrived at our second story. And it starts with Courtney Christman. I'm ready. Who, back in 2010, was in her senior year of college in Pennsylvania. She'd been going to the same church since she was little, the Christ Mertz Lutheran Church in Fleetwood. And she'd been on a few mission trips when she was younger, which she liked so much that she decided to lead her own week-long mission trip her senior year to Haiti. The mission of this specific trip was um, to go down and we were going to spend some of the time working with the children um, at the school that was there. And then we were going to spend time kind of out and about doing some work on the buildings as well. Her group, which was 12 people from the church, they flew down to Quad-a-Bouquet which is in the outskirts of Port-au-Prince. 
And there they volunteered for an organization called Village of Hope, which is a nonprofit that provides educational opportunities and basic health care to a rural community outside the city. So that was the original mission of the um, of the trip. Courtney's group helped paint the church and spent time with the children in the Village of Hope school. <laughs> um, I, you couldn't walk somewhere without somebody giving you a hug. Um, and although hugs yeah. might not be a measure of real impact, Courtney says she felt good about being there. And then you realize, you know, I'm, I'm on this trip because this is where God wants me to be. And I'm on this trip because I needed to learn something from this trip. You know, I, it puts so much perspective on... And then as we mentioned, the story is still developing. Seth, the earthquake rocked this impoverished Caribbean nation late this afternoon. Emergency relief as aid organizations make their way to the sea. The reports and images that we've seen collapsed hospitals, crumbled homes and men and women carrying their injured neighbors through the streets are truly heart wrenching. At 4.53 p.m. on January 12, 2010, a magnitude 7.0 earthquake struck just south of Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Courtney and her group were back at their living accommodations after a day of work. And um, the ground just kind of started to shake. And I remember just kind of looking at my friend who was sitting beside me, Megan, my friend, and I'm, I'm just kind of looking at her with like, you know, what is happening on my face? And then it, she, I heard her yell out to me and it was like in slow motion. She's like, it's an earthquake. And then I look and I just see the ground just moving and it looks like waves. It looked like ocean waves. I mean, it rose two feet. It looked like it rose two or three feet in the air and then dropped. They were staying in a complex of one-story buildings that had bunks and a kitchen. Fortunately, most of them were sitting outside. Then I just remember that my my dad and my fiancé, who's my husband now, Josh, they were both back under the shed. And when I looked back to see if I could see anybody else, the shed, I could see that the shed roof had fallen. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> um, I could see that the shed roof had fallen and then it like struck me, you know, that fear of, you know, there were some people back there. And so I went running back and I just remember, you know, hollering all the people's names that were back there. Um, there and and I didn't hear from anybody and I couldn't see anybody. And and then um, my my fiance had come and he's like, I'm, I'm right here. I'm OK. You know, I'm standing right here. I'm in front of you. And and then I see my dad come around and then I see the other two people come around um, who were back with them. And, the, you know, we all, all just kind of started to congregate in the middle. And um, there was a lot there was relief after that when we counted and everybody was there and um, everybody was safe. Nobody in Courtney's group was hurt, but many other people were. An estimated 3 million people were affected by the earthquake. The death count is highly disputed, but ranges somewhere from 200 to 300,000. One million people were left homeless in the aftermath. And today, 2.5 million Haitians are still in need of humanitarian aid. So, so what did they do? Well, at first, the group tried to help. But after a few days, they started to get worried about their supply of food and water and their safety. So at that point, they went to the embassy trying to leave. And they were told that 200 people or more stood ahead of them in line to get out of the country and that it would probably be weeks before they could get out. So Courtney called her insurance company. She had cell phone service and she called her insurance company, uh, which called Global Rescue. 
The earthquake was on Tuesday. On Saturday, two Global Rescue employees arrived in Haiti and whisked the group to the airport at 5 a.m. the next morning. And in front of several hundred people waiting in embassy lines and several thousand more who would never be able to afford to leave their ruined country, Courtney's group boarded one of the first chartered flights out of Haiti. I asked Courtney how it felt. I just remember sitting on the um, on the airplane as we were flying out of Haiti and just, you know, feeling like I wanted to tell the pilot, no, turn around, let me out. You know, I'm not done yet. Let me out. I, I need to go back. And, um, you know, you feel very guilty because our plan was to go there and to be there for a week and to, you know, make a, an impact. And, and then this happened. And part of it felt like... Um, we didn't do enough then, you know, there was still so much work now to be done. And we, and we, and we got to go home. She said she was happy that her group was safe, especially because she was the leader and she felt responsible for them. But for me specifically, I did not feel that at all. I, I was not ready to come home by any means. I was, my heart was still there. (laughs) But she said she had to put that feeling aside to protect the survival of the other members of the group. And that's that's hard to do, I think, for anybody, because even the people who were ready to come home, I, you know, I still think they conflicted with that. And should I feel like this? Should I feel like I want to go home and I want to go home and I want to survive? But I'm right here in the middle of everybody who needs my help. And so um, it's a very tricky and, and sticky situation. Right. Well, and you're you're confronted with your own privilege because right. you were con- you were confronted with it before, I'm sure, when you just saw the level of poverty, but you you were on this trip to mm-hmm. spread that, to spread yep. it around, right? But yep. but you used it to get out, you know. Exactly. And and that is I mean, that was really it. Like I, you know, it, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better. You really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> So it's just a crazy conflict of emotions. You know, on the one hand, she went to Haiti with a specific purpose in mind, to help and to give back, right? But then on the other hand, there's the instinct to survive and to protect the people she's close to above anyone else, which is an instinct that's built right into every cell of our bodies. And is that instinct somehow immoral? I mean, what do you think, Sam? Wow. Uh... Is the instinct immoral? I mean, it's like instincts don't really have morality, right? I don't think the will to survive can be immoral. It's like, what do you do with that? I mean, if I were in that situation, I don't, I don't know what I would do. Mm. And I think this feels, this feels particularly bad because she was on this religious mission. But when it came down to it, she just saved herself. And, and to save herself, she called on this system that winds up putting a plane of white folks first in line when there are kids out there waiting for food and water. And I imagine the airport must have just been like chaos. Yeah, it was. It was a total mess. Uh, The runway was so clogged with planes that they couldn't clear them all out for takeoff and landing. And there were planes circling around for hours. Also, the U.S. military had to come in. So, yeah, it was chaos. But, I mean, that said, we can't trace Courtney's rescue flight to someone else in Haiti that didn't get food or water. It's not that easy. But it does still raise some issues. 
My name is Neelan Parker. I'm the former deputy director of the Office of Transition Initiatives at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Neelan says in a crisis like Haiti, you'll see a lot of different organizations, governments, NGOs, even the United Nations, all vying for the same resources. And who comes out on top draws in stark relief a reality we prefer to ignore. My experience in aid in general is that there is just a fundamental inequality and injustice and that in the moments when you are getting on a plane and somebody else isn't getting on a plane are those moments where there's the least amount that you can do to fix that inequality and it is the most morally troubling. It just seems like in a disaster like this, Global Rescue, which has so many resources, should have some obligation to confront that inequality and help all those people who can't pay. But do they? I mean, do, do they help other people? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Like, if there's room on a flight, they will bring medical supplies and they will evacuate non-members. Right, so they'll, they'll help if it doesn't get in the way of their, their own client's survival. Right, but look, Global Rescue isn't the Red Cross. It's a business, and they have clients who are willing to pay for the services they offer. And can you really condemn Global Rescue or its members for that? Dan Richards, the CEO of Global Rescue, thinks that the choice not to insure your life raises its own moral questions. You could argue that not doing those things, going to a place like Haiti, could be one of the most selfish things that a person could do because the people who love you and care about you and who depend on you, um, if you go and don't come back, you've left them in the lurch. And um, that's an incredibly selfish thing to do. And we see that from time to time. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm sure there are people out there doing adventures who, like, don't buy this insurance and they don't think of themselves as selfish or irresponsible. Right. Okay, well, here's Mark Jenkins. He's the writer-in-residence for the University of Wyoming, as well as a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine. And he's been on all sorts of dangerous adventures. He's an acclaimed mountaineer, and often he goes without any sort of backup plan. The difficulty obviously rises when affluence gives one person a better chance of survival than another person, a person of lesser means, which, which as we discussed, Cord, we already know is precisely how the world works. If you get cancer in Holland, your chances of survival are much higher than if you get cancer in the Congo. Uh, we are living not in the world of our choosing, but in the world we have, which is packed full of the haves and the have-nots. Oh, man. It's like what, what, I mean, this is like a proxy for what does the developed world owe the developing world. Right. And it's like if we're outraged about this, then we have to be outraged about about the entire system of global capitalism. Right. What would it take? What would it take to reject that whole system and choose to live your life in a way that didn't adhere to any of those values? Well, and even if you choose to to reject that whole system, it's not like it's going away. Yeah. And I mean, can we expect, is it fair to expect global rescue to <laughs> reject capitalism, throw the free market system out the window and say, here, we're, we're here to save everybody, you know. Yeah. And so their position is, we're working on this one thing. Yeah. And you can't blame the inequities of the world on us. Right. Well, here's Mark Jenkins again. 
we're always faced with this. I think this is the this is the human condition. And and what do we really owe our fellow man? What do we owe our fellow man? Yeah, probably probably more than we're giving them now. Probably. But when it comes to saving your own life and the lives of the people you love, that question gets a whole lot harder to answer. Yeah, I you're talking to the wrong guy if you want a an in-depth um you know <laughs> uh microscopic examination of the moral implications because I will never be able to understand why there might be a moral question about rescuing somebody. I, I just, particularly at the risk of your own life, I, I just, that's just not a moral question in my mind. I thought we were just going to be talking about Mount Everest. I didn't realize <laughs> that we were going to be like deconstructing global capitalism in here. Cordelia Zars hijacks the show and next thing we know... <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by Cordelia Zars with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, Maureen McMurray, Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks to Frank Malcheri, Ben Ayers, Ann Shannon, and Megan Trupp for their help making the story come together. Thanks also to Robert Kay and Courtney Christman for sharing their stories with us. And just a postscript here, Robert has adopted two girls from Nepal. One of them is applying to med school this year, and Courtney is hoping to set up a physical therapy clinic in Haiti as soon as she can. If you want to learn more about Global Rescue, head on over to our website. That's where you can find rescue videos, pictures of the office fitness test, and... Two cinnamon raisin bagels, two uh, yogurts, and an orange juice. We don't have pictures of his breakfast, unfortunately. (laughs) You can also find some photos of Courtney's trip to Haiti. It's outsideinradio.org. You should also check out our social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Outside In Radio. Tell us what you think of this question. Are you okay with wealth being how we decide who gets rescued first when disaster strikes? Music this week was composed by the many talented Cordelia Zars. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Many of their employees come from a military background. Can you do that again, except uh, instead of employees, say employees? <laughs> many of their employees many come of from their employees a military come background. From a military background. Employees. On Saturday, two Global Rescue employees... How do you say that word? <laughs> <laughs> Just employees as opposed to employees.